What is love? Makes you want to break out into a song, right? What is love? I want to talk about the royal law of love. And I was thinking of it because a friend of mine who has a family member who um, is a, is a you know, church-type person, and she was just saying that, you know, well, look, we, the only command we have is the command to love one another. So all that stuff that you get into about Sabbath-keeping and all that other stuff just doesn't make any sense because Jesus, all he said to do was to love. So I want to talk to you about that. Go to 1 John 4, verse 7 through 8. And uh, we are in agreement with uh, this anonymous person. We don't disagree with her on some points, not all though. If you look at 1 John 4, verse 7 and 8, it says, Dear friends, so this is to you, to God's people, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. Drop down to verse 16. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Without a doubt, love is the very heart of our belief system. And everything that we do really does revolve around that. But what is love? What is love? I mean, what does, what does it look like? How would I know love if I saw it? Is there anything that I can do to walk in a more loving manner, to be a more loving person? I think those are good questions to ask. If love is, you know, the heart and soul of our belief system, I think those are good questions. Now, if you were to ask around and you were to ask people, what, what is love? What does it mean? I think you would get some very interesting answers. I think probably everybody would give you a different answer. There might be some overlap. Is love a feeling? Is love a feeling? Is it an emotion? Does love mean caring deeply? You know, really, I really care. And that's, that's what love is all about. Well, that just, moves, that just moves it over one step because then you have to define, well, what does caring mean beyond an emotion? Is love sexual attraction? That's a very common belief. Love means different things to different people. If you go out on the street and you were to hold a microphone up in, in, you know, to, their, to their mouth, they tell you what love is. I think you'd find some of these same things that I've mentioned, but you might find some other, other ones. The point is that it means different things to different people. And that actually poses a problem. Because if everybody has a different definition of it, well, imagine if we all had a different definition of um, you know, what a potato is. And, you know, you could feed me some kind of horrible, poisonous root and say, well, that's a potato. Well, no, that's not a potato. You need to have the, the, the common understanding of what something is in order to communicate successfully with people. If we all have a different definition of love, okay, if we all have, if everybody had a different definition of love, then love really would have no meaning at all 
because it could mean whatever you decided to assign to it that particular day. And actually, this is one of the ways that love is used as a sort of a deceptive code word that is used to excuse or encourage self-destructive behavior. And people do some terrible things to themselves and to others and excuse it by saying love is what's driving me. But there's no definition of love to really confirm that. Let's take an example. Okay, so parent. I think that's an experience that a lot of us can relate to. Um, if I discipline my child, okay, if I discipline my child so that they might develop their own personal discipline, you know, if I, well, you know what disciplining means. I don't need to say it. Um, I do this so that they'll have a better shot at success because I want them to launch. I want them to go out there and I want them to be a viable person on their own. That's what parents do. So am I loving? You know, I've, I've punished that child. I've disciplined them. Am I loving or am I rigid and harsh? Now let's say parent, another parent, if I give in to every whim my child has, and they want this, and they want that, and I give them everything they want, everything they want, every whim is satisfied, I shower them with gifts. Am I a loving parent? Because I've kind of neglected uh, teaching them some valuable lessons. They could end up expecting to always have their own way in life. They could grow up not really learning how to fend for themselves and take care of themselves. So have I acted in love toward them? Or am I just lazy? <laughs> so you see where love can be used in different ways and people can use it to excuse particular behaviors. I picked a fairly benign one there. Well, not really, actually. You know, the way you raise a child is going to have a big impact on them. So one of the problems is that, that, that if everybody has a different definition of love, it can mean anything. And if it can mean anything, then it means nothing. The second problem, the second problem is that the, those popular definitions of love, what, where I, I kind of spelled them out pretending I was man on the street, um, you know, feeling or sexual attraction or stuff like that, those are not actionable. You can't act on those things. You can respond to them. Basically, a feeling or sexual attraction is response to external stimuli. I mean, there's stuff going on out there, um, and you're reacting to it. It's not a proactive stance where you're actually doing something. So it's not actionable. It, it doesn't give you a plan. You just have to kind of wait around. You know, that's where you know, people say, well, I'm, I'm waiting. I want to fall in love. Well, you actually don't fall in love. You have to, you have to, climb, you have to climb up into love. Um, that's, not, that's not how it works. Uh, what you fall into is something a little different. <laughs> I put it to you that the Ten Commandments define love. The Ten Commandments define love. And this is where we part ways with our anonymous friend, and Jesus commanded, we love one another. Because we say there needs to be a definition to love. And that definition begins with the Ten Commandments. For love to be uh, helpful, 
word, to be a helpful concept, a helpful guide to life, it, it must be defined and have actionable features, things you can you know, do. The Ten Commandments are the beginning of creating such a definition. And I say beginning because we must build on that foundation. We begin with the commandments, but we build upon them. We're going to stick with the commandments today, but there are other aspects to love that need to be built on that foundation, and perhaps we'll have time to come around to that another day. But the Ten Commandments, well, that's where we, we're going to start with the foundation. Go to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 35. This is the verse that, that uh, our anonymous person was referring to. Jesus has been talking to the Sadducees, and he's kind of put them in their place and you know, spoken the truth to them. And a man comes up, and he's, he's got his question. He says in verse 36, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And that was one of these things that the, the Jewish people sort of had this, you know, it was one of those questions that would start off a conversation, you know. They were, which is the most important, or which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied in verse 37, Oh, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. What Jesus is doing is providing a summary, a high-level summary, if you will, of the commandment's ultimate purpose, which is love. And he gives us two areas to focus on, first being to, to, to practice, to learn, and to demonstrate love toward God, which would be commandments one, two, three, and four. And we went through those in detail a couple of months ago. The second part is to practice, to learn, and to demonstrate love toward our fellow human beings. And that's where we have the remaining commandments, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and 10. Jesus actually applies this, um, this summary overview to more than just the commandments. He says the whole Bible. If you look at what he says, it's, he says all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. He's pulling the entire Bible into the conversation. And he's saying that's what the Bible is all about. Explaining these high-level concepts, to love God and to love fellow man. All the law and the prophets are drawn into this basic concept. One purpose of the Bible, you know, if you want to look at the whole, the whole book, is to provide guidance, all right? Um, the commandments, Proverbs, another good example. Uh, right way to live, uh, which include action and with the New Testament, you get into the intent as well. Now, another purpose of the Bible, and this is one that really actually messes people up because uh, they don't get it. Another purpose of the Bible is to depict the problems that arise when practicing or when people are not practicing the way of love. And that's a big part of what you see in Scripture. And it, it shows us, particularly in the history of Israel, Here's what happens when people don't live the way of love. You know, you can look at the history of the record of all the different 
personalities in scripture, David, Abraham, and you read them through and you say, well, certain things happen. They, they kind of go off the rails. Well, these are depictions of what happens when people go off the path of love. Let's take a look at love in the Old Testament. Now, I mentioned that love is the, what the whole Bible is about. It's the centerpiece of all scripture. And I think that there's a, there's a misunderstanding, uh, not among people in this room, of course, that the New Testament is the testament is where all the love stuff comes in. But the Old Testament is involved in this discussion and exposition, if you will, of love as well. When Jesus answered that question about which is the greatest commandment, he was quoting from the Old Testament. He was making up new stuff. He was quoting from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, 13. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. The context of that, the larger context of that, if you just you know, go back, maybe in, my, in my Bible, it's, I flip back a page. This is the time when Moses has to create that second set of tablets. You know, the first set of Ten Commandments got smashed because the people were having a, sounds like they were having kind of a sex party down at the bottom of the mountain. And Moses was so mad, he threw the tablets down and broke them, and he had to go back with another set, and God wrote them over again. So the context is they've just received this second set of tablets with the Ten Commandments on them. And then in verse 12, it says, the focus of this is to love God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. Now, the other section that Jesus was quoting was in Leviticus, and that's chapter 19. Leviticus 19, verse 18 it says, uh, the first part of it, don't seek revenge or bear a grudge against any one of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The context for this, if you look at chapter 19 and you look at it in detail, is examples and applications of God's law and how it plays out in a community setting. Don't do this. Don't do this to other people. Do that. Don't Be careful. Treat people this way. Don't treat them that way. And then it says in verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. So following the commandments is intimately, intrinsically linked with love in God's way of thinking. And it is from beginning to end in scripture. Go to Romans 13, verse 9. Paul's writing about the commandments here. And what does Paul say? Well, in verse... 9, he's breaking in here in the middle of the thought. He's saying the commandments. Then he starts listing some of them. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not cover. And whatever other commandment there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Now that last sentence there is very interesting. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And I think it's very commonly misunderstood. If you look up the meaning of words, I like to do that, as you, as you know. 
That word there, fulfill, means to fill up. To fill something up. Like you might fill up a cargo ship with cargo. So I'm going to fill up the ship with, I don't know, apples or bananas or whatever. Because I fill the cargo ship up. Now, it's in this way that love is filled up with the commandments. Uh, you could read that. It says, love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is filled up with the law. Okay? There's two ways to look at it. The commandments provide content and definition and detail to this idea of love. And that's what you see there with that word fulfillment, fulfill. The law fills up the law, or sorry, love, sorry. Think of love as an empty jar, you know, a glass jar. If I were to start filling it with marbles or whatever, you'd see the jar fill up. Well, the marbles would be the law. Love is the jar. It needs the, you need the content in there. Go to John 3, verse 16. Love is connected to eternity. Love and eternity. Well, how are they connected? Let's take a look at John 3, verse 16. Very well-known scripture, which says, For God so loved the world, he gave his only, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him, that, that's Jesus, should not perish, won't die, but will have eternal life. But God so loved the world that he wanted people to have eternal life. God wants all people to live forever and to attain eternal life life. This is part of his love for, for you and for other people. But first, but first, God wants us to learn how to get along, how to get along with one another. He wants us to learn how to love one another. And he wants this, he wants this so that eternal life might be harmonious that it might be beautiful and that it might be uplifting and joyous. You can think of eternal life. It doesn't have to be good. It could be horrible. But God does not want that. And that's why, you know, the teaching about hell is so awful and it's against everything that God really is all about. God wants eternity to be harmonious, beautiful, uplifting, joyous, it's hard for us to wrap our mind around that because that's not what we experience in this life. We're here learning lessons. The goal is an eternity that is all that. Go to 1 John 3, verse 14. It says here, We know that we have passed from death to life. So there's this transition that's being discussed here. Passing from death to life. And we talk about that in more detail at other times of the year. Because we love each other. We know that that is our future because we love one another, passing from death to life. And it says, anyone who does not 
love remains in death. It means they have no future. They are not going to enter eternity. A person who does not learn love is not going to pass from death to life. It won't happen. It's like a filter, if you will. I mean, that's a word we use nowadays. It's a filter. It's not going to happen. They will not pass from death to life. It goes on to say, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. It's just not going to pass over the wall or through the sieve or the filter or whatever analogy you want to use. It's not going to happen. God will not allow things like resentment or jealousy, envy, selfishness, violence, or hatred to enter into eternity. It's not going to go there. It's not going to be part of it. Go to Matthew 19, verse 17. So love is connected to eternity. Matthew 19, verse 17. So uh, Jesus is, I guess he's walking through town. And a man comes out to him and he says, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? What do I have to do to get eternal life? And Jesus answers him. First he says, well, why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one that is good. But the real heart of it here is he says, if you, if you want to enter life... You ask the question, okay, if you want to enter into eternal life, which is what the guy is asking about, keep the commandments. That's from Jesus. So if you, if you want to enter, keep the commandments. Now the discussion with this man goes on, but for our purpose and point, that's what Jesus said. And it makes sense when you understand that the commandments are the beginning of the definition of this crazy thing called love. Now, love is also what I'm going to call a package deal, okay? Uh, Love is a package deal. What I mean by that? Well, you need to have all the pieces working for it to be called love. Let's say I was an automotive engineer, all right? And I was designing a car. And um, I design it, and I design it without any wheels on it. Because I think it looks, it looks better without wheels. It's kind of sleek. and you know. So I design it without any wheels. Then it's not really a car, is it? It's a big chunk of metal that's sitting in my garage that can't go anywhere. It's not a car. If I leave the wheels off, it's something else. It's a big metal box. By definition, that's not a car. It might look kind of like a car, you know, but there's no wheels on it. So it's not going anywhere. In the same way, true biblical love means all the commandments. All the commandments. Go to James 2, verse 8 through 11. Here's one of those references to the royal law. It says, if you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, and that's, that's what he's getting at in this larger section, because the people are having a problem in their congregation. They're showing favoritism. 
says, but, you know, so you're doing this thing. You're, you know, you love your neighbor. You're doing good. But if you show favoritism, then you sin and you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. And if you, don't, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, well, then you're a lawbreaker. So if I, let's say I had a problem, temper, okay, and I was the kind of person who liked to kill other people in vengeance and stuff like that, okay. And let's say I, I renounce violence and murder. So that's not, that's not going to define me anymore. I'm not going to be a violent man anymore, uh, prone to outbreaks of wrath, wrath and murder. Well, that's a good thing, right? I would be a better person for it, wouldn't I? I'd have made some moves forward towards love, being a more loving person, right? Well, I'm not going to kill you, right? Good, thanks. Uh, you know, I'd be a better person. But if I'm at the same time, let's say I've made this fundamental change in my life and I'm not going to you know, have these crazy outbursts of wrath and violence and stuff like that. But at the same time, um, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a fighter anymore, but I'm still a lover. And uh, you know, I'm unfaithful, uh, disloyal to my wife, you know, kind of let my kids down. Then if you look at me as a whole package, would you define me as a loving person? I'm not killing anybody, right? I've changed my wicked ways, but I'm, you know, unreliable, you know? I mean, I'm, I'm fun to be with, but I'm not faithful, loyal, I'm not a good dad. Am I a loving person? No. You need them all. You need the whole package. You can't leave parts of it out. So, you know, and of course, we would come around to the first four commandments about loving God. You don't leave any of those out either. It's a whole deal. You don't leave any one of them out. We're in James. Let's take a look at verse 12. It says, then speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And mercy triumphs over judgment. Well, look, anytime you start talking about the law, you've got to throw in this. You've got to tell, remind people, look, every single one of us falls short at some point. We, we fall short of the full measure of the goodness of God. Jesus Christ, which is why we have to show mercy toward one another, mercy and grace towards one another. But at the same time, we should actively be changing our lives to follow God's commandments, which are called the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom. So let's talk about freedom. Law and love, are they connected? Well, the Bible depicts God's laws as a way of freedom. And uh, you know, there's some verses we'll, we'll have coming up in a bit on that. It's a way of freedom or liberty. I know I'm asking a lot of questions, but then I think we've got to ask, well, what does it mean to be free? What does it mean to be free? And what exactly are we freed from? Because most people... If we go back to that man on the street and start asking him about freedom, 
most people tend to view rules and commandments as the opposite of freedom, don't they? We all have to overcome the, uh, the thinking that freedom means a world where we all get to make our own rules. You know, that, that might be, well, uh, I'm a good person, so if I made the rules, then I'll be good. Uh, don't kid yourself. The heart is wicked and deceitful above all things. Uh, freedom does not mean a world where we all get to make our own rules and do as we please. That isn't freedom. That's got another name. It's called anarchy or chaos. That's what it would be. Let me give you a, a little, I hope it's not too pithy for you, but what one person considers freedom of expression, another person might consider child abuse. Right? So <laughs> what about my freedom to be free from your freedom or your idea of freedom? <laughs> I want to be free from that. So who's free and who's not? So we need boundaries. We need boundaries if we're going to get along. Well, the freedom that God's law provides is freedom from sin. Freedom from sin. And freedom from its consequences. Go to Romans 3. Romans 3 verse 16 and 17. You know, as usual with Paul, we're breaking into a larger thought. <laughs> But he's talking about the fact that, you know, no one's righteous. Everybody's got problems, and this world is a crazy world. And if we're thinking about the consequences of sin, well, here's, here's something to consider in verse 16. Ruin and misery mark their ways. People who are, you know, living in this terrible way and thinking of sin. Ruin, misery, okay, or destruction mark their ways and there's no peace in them they don't even know what it means let's go to Romans 6 verse 19 this might be the verse you thought I was going to go to first uh, in verse 19 we'll, we'll read through verse 21 it's in verse 19 he says I'm, I'm going to use an example from everyday life because of your human limitations so he's setting up an analogy here and I want to make a point of that because I want you to remember it's an analogy. And then he goes on with the analogy. He says, just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness, leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things that you're now ashamed of? Those things result in death. They have no future. They don't lead anywhere. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin, which you earn from sin, is death. That's where it leads. You know, non-being, you... But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So the other consequence, well, the other, um, where, where were we with, with that? Um, we're talking about the freedom from sin and its consequences. 
And so the consequences are destruction, ruin, death, no future, no avenue to eternity. Your freedom, the freedom that comes from God's law, comes when you're set free from deception. You're set free from the destructive ways of thinking and acting that end up leading you or leaving you in a dead-end situation. Imagine, imagine yourself in a room, all right? You're in this room, and massive walls in this room are slowly moving in, closer and closer and closer. You're going to be crushed. At some point, those walls are going to get so close, you will be crushed, and there'll be nothing there. There's no escape. There's no door. There's no window. You're in this room, and it's like, you know, at some point you realize it. Oh, boy, this is bad. But some people never realize it, you know. Oh, the room's smaller today. Then a voice calls out. voice calls out to you, and it says, I can get you out of the room. I can get you out of this room. I can lift you out of it if you're willing to carefully follow my instructions. The room... Okay, well, obviously it's an analogy. It's kind of like um, I'm appealing to your sense of you know, having watched Batman or something like that. The room, though, is the inevitability of your physical existence. It will come to an end, and you will end up... There'll be nothing. Nothing. And there's life outside this room, though. There's life outside. There's a big eternity out there. But getting out... And being prepared for life outside this room involves some stuff you've, you've got to learn do. A change of mind, a change of the way you act, your habits, and your attitudes. God wants to see a sincere desire to live this different way. Go to, we're in Romans 6. Let's back up to verse 17, right before the section we just read. And it says, but thanks to be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. And you've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. A sincere desire from the heart to live a different way and to think and act a different way. Go to 1 John 5, verse 3. It says, in, the, in fact, this is love for God, to keep his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. They're not a drag. They're a challenge. They, they can be very challenging to follow God's commands in this world, but they're not a burden. They're your way out. They're like a rope that's thrown down to you into that room that allows you to get out. Psalm 119 and verse 44. This idea of God's law being the law of freedom is not something that just came up in the New Testament either. We're going back to the Old Testament. We're going to see the same concept there. Psalm 119 verse 44 says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts, and I will speak of your testimonies before kings, and I will not be put to shame. 
for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out from, for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. Just drop down to verse 98, since we're already there. And it says, your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. And I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. And I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. What he's saying is, God's law is allowing you to tap into the wisdom of the universe, if you will, which we've discussed at other points, and freeing you, freeing you from sin and its consequences. Okay. Since I've mentioned sin, I may as well talk about it a little bit more. Um, love is related to sin. Go to 1 John again. 1 John uh, chapter 3, verse 4. I've been waiting to tell it for a long time. All right, love and sin. 1 John 3, verse 4, which says, Everyone who sins practices lawlessness. In fact, sin is Lawlessness. Lawlessness is a word we've discussed before. It's to be without the law, to have you know, no law. Lawlessness is, let's tell let's, let's it this way. Lawlessness is activity outside the boundary lines drawn by God's commandments. You're coloring outside the lines, right? You know, when your kid's doing that, you say, no, no, no. Color within the lines because you're trying to teach them you know, certain habits and discipline. Uh, lawlessness is coloring outside the lines, all right? These are the lines and the boundaries that define eternity. That define eternity. A lawless person is one who acts and thinks as if there was no law. They're without law, lawless, okay? So they are not compatible with eternity, they're not compatible. As, uh, I don't know what it, what, what it would be like, but you know, in Star Trek, you know, matter and antimatter are not compatible. And if they ever meet, boom, bad things are going to happen. Lawlessness is not compatible with eternity. They don't mix. If we continue on here in verse 5, it says, But you know that he, that's Jesus, appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. And no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. And no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. So a person who continually sins, who's not working at overcoming, doesn't really care, is sort of a lawless person. Well, <laughs> scriptures say something very, very meaningful there about that. They don't know God. And if we or anyone else, move outside the boundaries of this definition of love, it has a negative impact. Let's put it that way. It has a negative impact on our relationship with the Father and the Son. It says here, you don't even know him. You don't have a relationship with him. You don't even know him. Now, we, uh, of course, look forward to the resurrection of the just, the resurrection, resurrection at Jesus' return. There's larger issues, of course, you know, eternity is something that's held out for more than just the first fruits, but the first fruits are going to enter into this very special relationship with Jesus, 
Okay? He comes back, there's going to be a resurrection. The Bible uses an analogy or the example of a human marriage. All right? And it's an analogy like, which you don't want to be careful with because it is not exactly the same as a human marriage. But it helps us to picture relationship with Jesus Christ, which is faithful and binding. Okay, it's a faithful relationship and it's a binding relationship. Let's just focus on that. Does Jesus Christ want to enter into this kind of relationship, binding, committed relationship with a person who has completely different values from him? So imagine what would happen to a man who wants a faithful, monogamous relationship, or it could be a woman, I mean, you can go both ways, right? Wants a faithful, monogamous relationship married to a woman who believes that adultery is okay. And they get married. Well, the marriage is going to be difficult. It's going to be unpleasant. It's going to be unsatisfying. And just imagine being trapped in a relationship like that forever. God wasn't going to let it happen. We're in 1 John 3, drop down to verse 10. It says, this is how we know who the children of God are, who's part of the family, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother or sister. So a lawless person, go back to you know, verse 4 where we were, a lawless person is not and will not be part of the family of God. Unless, of course, they repent. And God is open to that at all times, like we mentioned earlier. God is open. You know, the prodigal son is welcome back any time. But he has to be careful because if he waits to the last minute, he might find himself run out of time. How do we have a right relationship with God? We're in 1 John 2. 1 John, let's go to chapter 2, verse 4 through 6. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. And this is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Now there's an interesting concept, isn't it? He must live as Jesus did. Um, how did Jesus live? How did Jesus conduct himself? Go to John 15. John 15. How did Jesus describe himself? I think uh, we can trust his own words on on how he conducted himself. He says to his disciples, if you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my father's commands and remain in his love. That's how Jesus conducted his life. And if, you know, John, writing 40, 50 years later, says, live as Jesus did, well, Jesus says, I kept the commandments. I, I don't think it's too hard to connect the dots. You know, Jesus, he, he set boundaries on his life, and he used the commandments to do that. His actions and his thoughts were, were 
within the boundaries that were defined by the commandments. Now, again, Jesus is looking for a helpmate. You know, and that's the wonderful opportunity that the first fruits have, a helpmate to Jesus, which is another part of human marriage, which is worth considering. But he wants a helpmate who thinks and acts according to the same values and principles as he does. That's going to be a good relationship. Whereas sin, well, its relationship to, to love is basically, it's not love. It's non-love, if you will. You've got sin over here and love. And they're, you know, what is not love is sin. And what is sin is not love. I mean, I don't want to go round and round and round and round and round with you. But sin is lawlessness, which was refusing to be bound by God's rules. Those are the rules which define a healthy, happy, satisfying relationship between you and God, which we talked about. That's the first part. You know, love God with all your heart and all your soul, between you and Christ, and between you and all people. We have a guide to conduct. Now, God's commands, and you know, we're speaking there, we're thinking mostly of the Ten Commandments. God, God's Ten Commandments are a high-level summary. I mean, we started off with the highest-level summary, which is love. God's commands are a, still a high-level summary of God's way of life. And the rest of Scripture builds on that foundation builds on that foundation. So people can start teaching about love, but if they don't build it on the foundation of God's commandments, it really ends up being kind of, well, whatever they decide it means. What did Jesus say? Well, with regard to the commandments, he told people, don't get the wrong idea about me. I am not here to replace the commandments with some new thing, something different. I am here to fulfill them. And remember what, what, what we were looking at with the word fulfill? Fulfill, to fill it up like a cargo ship. I am here to fill up the commandments, to add content and detail, understanding. And let's go to Matthew 5, verse 17. Where he says that. All right, let me quote it now. Don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. All the stuff that's come before. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And again, what he means by fulfill is to fill them up with content and meaning and application. The context speaks to that as well. What happens exactly right after he says this? What does he do? He launches into... The Sermon on the Mount, which talks about um, the commandments, like don't murder, don't commit adultery. And what does he do with those? He adds meaning to them, extra meaning that maybe wasn't there before. He fills them up. He magnifies them and gives explanation and understanding, content, detail, adding to this definition of love that begins with the commandments. That's what he was doing. And he, you know, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, he goes into all kinds of different areas and he shows, well, this is, this is how it works and this is how it, he's connecting the dots for love. This is how you love your fellow human beings and this is how you, um, you show love toward God and so forth. So with murder, with adultery, we get into the, the emotions and the uh, 
intent that goes behind those. That's, you know, well, that's not our subject for today. I hope that we can get into that in the future. But he's, you know, adding this. He's magnifying this. And all of this builds on the royal law of love, which is where we started off, which is to love God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul and to love your fellow human beings. And lots of people like to point to Jesus' comments about the greatest commandment and interpret that to say, well, he only gave us one command. He only gave us one. So I don't need to do anything else. I just need to love. Right? Because Jesus said, love. Follow my command to love one another. Well, that's it. I've got it. But what is love? I get back to the beginning. What is love? Um, what does it look like? Uh, how will I know it when I see it? And is there anything I can do to walk in a more loving mindset, in a more loving way? The Ten Commandments are your roadmap, if you will, to a loving relationship with God and a loving relationship with your fellow human beings. The commandments are given to us for our good, to help us. They're not a burden. They're not a test. I mean, there's an element of that to it, but they're there for our good so that we learn to live this way. And they are for our blessing so that we might attain all the wonderful things that are out there that God has in store for us. The commandments are so much more than a list of do's or don'ts. They are instruction. The commandments are instruction with a purpose and with a goal. Life, eternity, and joy. <laughs>